Section 19 of the Theory of Moral Sentiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Biddy. The Theory of Moral Sentiments by Adam Smith. Part 3. Of the foundation of our judgments concerning our own sentiments and conduct, and of the sense of duty consisting of one section. Chapter 5. Of the influence and authority of the general rules of morality, and that they are justly regarded as the laws of deity. The regard to those general rules of conduct is what is properly called a sense of duty, a principle of the greatest consequence in human life, and the only principle by which the bulk of mankind are capable of directing their actions. Many men behave very decently, and through the whole of their lives avoid any considerable degree of blame, who yet perhaps never felt the sentiment upon the propriety of which we found our approbation of their conduct, but acted merely from a regard to what they saw were the established rules of behavior. The man who has received great benefits from another person may, by the natural coldness of his temper, feel but a very small degree of the sentiment of gratitude. If he has been virtuously educated, however, he will often have been made to observe how odious those actions appear which denote a want of this sentiment, and how amiable the contrary. Though his heart, therefore, is not warmed with any grateful affection, he will strive to act as if it was, and will endeavor to pay all those regards and attentions to his patron which the liveliest gratitude could suggest. He will visit him regularly, he will behave to him respectfully, he will never talk of him but with expressions of the highest esteem and of the many obligations which he owes to him and what is more, he will carefully embrace every opportunity of making a proper return for his past services. He may do all this, too, without any hypocrisy or blamable dissimulation, without any selfish intention of obtaining new favors, and without any design of imposing either upon his benefactor or the public. The motive of his actions may be no other than a reverence for the established rule of duty, a serious and earnest desire of acting in every respect according to the law of gratitude. A wife, in the same manner, may sometimes not feel that tender regard for her husband, which is suitable to the relation that subsists between them. If she has been virtuously educated, however, she will endeavor to act as if she felt it, to be careful, officious, faithful, and sincere, and to be deficient in none of those attentions which the sentiment of conjugal affection could have prompted her to perform. Such a friend, and such a wife, are neither of them undoubtedly the very best of their kinds, and though both of them may have the most serious and earnest desire to fulfill every part of their duty, yet they will fail in many nice and delicate regards. They will miss many opportunities of obliging, which they could never have overlooked if they had possessed the sentiment that is proper to their situation. Though not the very first of their kinds, however, they are perhaps the second, and if the regard to the general rules of conduct has been very strongly impressed upon them, neither of them will fail in any very essential part of their duty. None but those of the happiest mould are capable of suiting, with exact justness, their sentiments and behaviour to the smallest difference of situation, and of acting upon all occasions with the most delicate and accurate propriety. The coarse clay of which the bulk of mankind are formed cannot be wrought up to such perfection. There is scarce any man, however, who by discipline, education, and example may not be so impressed with a regard to general rules as to act upon almost every occasion with tolerable decency, and through the whole of his life to avoid any considerable degree of blame. 
Without this sacred regard to general rules, there is no man whose conduct can be much depended upon. It is this which constitutes the most essential difference between a man of principle and honor and a worthless fellow. The one adheres, on all occasions, steadily and resolutely to his maxims, and preserves through the whole of his life one even tenor of conduct. The other acts variously and accidentally, as humor, inclination, or interest chance to be uppermost. Nay, such are the inequalities of humor to which all men are subject, that without this principle the man who in all his cool hours had the most delicate sensibility to the propriety of conduct might often be led to act absurdly upon the most frivolous occasions, and when it was scarce possible to assign any serious motive for his behaving in this manner, your friend makes you a visit when you happen to be in a humor which makes it disagreeable to receive him. In your present mood his civility is very apt to appear an impertinent intrusion, and if you were to give way to the views of things which at this time occur, though civil in your temper, you would behave to him with coldness and contempt. What renders you incapable of such a rudeness is nothing but a regard to the general rules of civility and hospitality which prohibit it. That habitual reverence which your former experience has taught you for these enables you to act upon all such occasions with nearly equal propriety and hinders those inequalities of temper to which all men are subject from influencing your conduct in any very sensible degree. But if without regard to these general rules, even the duties of politeness which are so easily observed and which one can scarce have any serious motive to violate would yet be so frequently violated what would become of the duties of justice of truth of chastity of fidelity which it is often so difficult to observe and which there may be so many strong motives to violate but upon the tolerable observance of these duties depends the very existence of human society which would crumble into nothing if mankind were not generally impressed with a reverence for those important rules of conduct. This reverence is still further enhanced by an opinion which is first impressed by nature, and afterwards confirmed by reasoning and philosophy, that those important rules of morality are the commands and laws of the deity, who will finally reward the obedient and punish the transgressors of their duty. This opinion, or apprehension, I say, seems first to be impressed by nature. Men are naturally led to ascribe to those mysterious beings, whatever they are, which happen in any country to be the objects of religious fear, all their own sentiments and passions. They have no other, they can conceive no other to ascribe to them. Those unknown intelligences, which they imagine but see not, must necessarily be formed with some sort of resemblance to those intelligences of which they have experience. During the ignorance and darkness of pagan superstition, mankind seem to have formed the ideas of their divinities with so little delicacy that they ascribe to them indiscriminately all the passions of human nature, those not accepted which do the least honor to our species, such as lust, hunger, avarice, envy, revenge. They could not fail, therefore, to ascribe to those beings for the excellence of whose nature they still conceive the highest admiration those sentiments and qualities which are the great ornaments of humanity and which seem to raise it to a resemblance of divine perfection the love of virtue and beneficence and the abhorrence of vice and injustice the man who was injured called upon jupiter to be witness of the wrong that was done to him 
and could not doubt but that divine being would behold it with the same indignation which would animate the meanest of mankind who looked on when injustice was committed the man who did the injury felt himself to be the proper object of the detestation and resentment of mankind and his natural fears led him to impute the same sentiments to those awful beings whose presence he could not avoid and whose power he could not resist these natural hopes and fears and suspicions were propagated by sympathy and confirmed by education and the gods were universally represented and believed to be the rewarders of humanity and mercy and the avengers of perfidy and injustice and thus religion even in its rudest form gave a sanction to the rules of morality long before the age of artificial reasoning and philosophy that the terrors of religion should thus enforce the natural sense of duty was of too much importance to the happiness of mankind for nature to leave it dependent upon the slowness and uncertainty of philosophical researches these researches however when they came to take place confirmed those original anticipations of nature upon whatever we suppose that our moral faculties are founded whether upon a certain modification of reason upon an original instinct called a moral sense or upon some other principle of our nature it cannot be doubted that they were given us for the direction of our conduct in this life they carry along with them the most evident badges of this authority which denote that they were set up within us to be the supreme arbiters of all our actions to superintend all our senses passions and appetites and to judge how far each of them was either to be indulged or restrained our moral faculties are by no means as some have pretended upon a level in this respect with the other faculties and appetites of our nature endowed with no more right to restrain these last than these last are to restrain them no other faculty or principle of action judges of any other love does not judge of resentment nor resentment of love those two passions may be opposite to one another but cannot with any propriety be said to approve or disapprove of one another but it is the peculiar office of those faculties now under our consideration to judge to bestow censure or applause upon all the other principles of our nature they may be considered as a sort of senses of which those principles are the objects every sense is supreme over its own objects there is no appeal from the eye with regard to the beauty of colors nor from the ear with regard to the harmony of sounds nor from the taste with regard to the agreeableness of flavors each of those senses judges in the last resort of its own objects whatever gratifies the taste is sweet whatever pleases the eye is beautiful whatever suits the ear is harmonious the very essence of each of those qualities consists in its being fitted to please the sense to which it is addressed it belongs to our moral faculties in the same manner to determine when the ear ought to be soothed when the eye ought to be indulged when the taste ought to be gratified when and how far every other principle of our nature ought either to be indulged or restrained what is agreeable to our moral faculties is fit and right and proper to be done the contrary wrong unfit and improper the sentiments which they approve of are graceful and becoming the contrary ungraceful and unbecoming the very words right wrong fit improper graceful unbecoming mean only what pleases or displeases those faculties 
Since these, therefore, were plainly intended to be the governing principles of human nature, the rules which they prescribe are to be regarded as the commands and laws of the deity, promulgated by those vicegerents which he has thus set up within us. All general rules are commonly denominated laws. Thus the general rules which bodies observe in the communication of motion are called the laws of motion. But those general rules which our moral faculties observe in approving or condemning whatever sentiment or action is subjected to their examination, may much more justly be denominated such. They have a much greater resemblance to what are properly called laws, those general rules which the sovereign lays down to direct the conduct of his subjects. Like them they are rules to direct the free actions of men. They are prescribed most surely by a lawful superior, and are attended to with the sanction of rewards and punishments. Those vicegerents of God within us never fail to punish the violation of them, by the torments of inward shame and self-condemnation, and on the contrary always reward obedience with tranquillity of mind, with contentment and self-satisfaction. There are innumerable other considerations which serve to confirm the same conclusion. The happiness of mankind, as well as of all other rational creatures, seems to have been the original purpose intended by the author of nature when he brought them into existence. No other end seems worthy of that supreme wisdom and divine benignity which we necessarily ascribe to him, and this opinion, which we are led to by the abstract consideration of his infinite perfections, is still more confirmed by the examination of the works of nature, which seem all intended to promote happiness and to guard against misery. But by acting according to the dictates of our moral faculties, we necessarily pursue the most effectual means for promoting the happiness of mankind, and may therefore be said, in some sense, to cooperate with the Deity, and to advance, as far as in our power, the plan of Providence. By acting other ways, on the contrary, we seem to obstruct, in some measure, the scheme which the author of nature has established for the happiness and perfection of the world, and to declare ourselves, if I may say so, in some measure, the enemies of God. Hence we are naturally encouraged to hope for his extraordinary favor and reward in the one case, and to dread his vengeance and punishment in the other. There are besides many other reasons and many other natural principles which all tend to confirm and inculcate the same salutary doctrine. If we consider the general rules by which external prosperity and adversity are commonly distributed in this life, we shall find that notwithstanding the disorder in which all things appear to be in this world, yet even here every virtue naturally meets with its proper reward, with the recompense which is most fit to encourage and promote it, and this too so surely that it requires a very extraordinary concurrence of circumstances entirely to disappoint it. What is the reward most proper for encouraging industry, prudence, and circumspection? Success in every sort of business. And is it possible that in the whole of life these virtues should fail of attaining it? Wealth and external honors are their proper recompense and the recompense which they can seldom fail of acquiring. What reward is most proper for promoting the practice of truth, justice, and humanity? The confidence, the esteem, and love of those we live with. Humanity does not desire to be great, but to be beloved. 
It is not in being rich that truth and justice would rejoice, but in being trusted and believed, recompenses which those virtues must almost always acquire. By some very extraordinary and unlucky circumstance, a good man may come to be suspected of a crime of which he was altogether incapable, and upon that account be most unjustly exposed for the remaining part of his life to the horror and aversion of mankind. By an accident of this kind he may be said to lose his all, notwithstanding his integrity and justice, in the same manner as a cautious man, notwithstanding his utmost circumspection, may be ruined by an earthquake or an inundation. Accidents of the first kind, however, are perhaps still more rare, and still more contrary to the common course of things, than those of the second, and it still remains true that the practice of truth, justice, and humanity is a certain and almost infallible method of acquiring what those virtues chiefly aim at, the confidence and love of those we live with. A person may be very easily misrepresented with regard to a particular action, but it is scarce possible that he should be so with regard to the general tenor of his conduct. An innocent man may be believed to have done wrong. This, however, will rarely happen. On the contrary, the established opinion of the innocence of his manners will often lead us to absolve him where he has really been in fault, notwithstanding very strong presumptions. A knave in the same manner may escape censure or even meet with applause for a particular knavery in which his conduct is not understood. But no man was ever habitually such without being almost universally known to be so, and without being even frequently suspected of guilt when he was in reality perfectly innocent and so far as vice and virtue can be either punished or rewarded by the sentiments and opinions of mankind, they both, according to the common course of things, meet even here with something more than exact and impartial justice. But, though the general rules by which prosperity and adversity are commonly distributed, when considered in this cool and philosophical light, appear to be perfectly suited to the situation of mankind in this life, yet they are by no means suited to some of our natural sentiments. Our natural love and admiration for some virtues is such that we should wish to bestow on them all sorts of honors and rewards, even those which we must acknowledge to be the proper recompenses of other qualities with which those virtues are not always accompanied. Our detestation, on the contrary, for some vices is such that we should desire to heap upon them every sort of disgrace and disaster, those not excepted which are the natural consequences of very different qualities. Magnanimity, generosity, and justice command so high a degree of admiration that we desire to see them crowned with wealth and power and honors of every kind, the natural consequences of prudence, industry, and application, qualities with which those virtues are not inseparably connected. Fraud, falsehood, brutality, and violence, on the other hand, excite in every human breast such scorn and abhorrence that our indignation rouses to see them possess those advantages which they may in some sense be said to have merited, by the diligence and industry with which they are sometimes attended. The industrious knave cultivates the soil. The indolent good man leaves it uncultivated. Who ought to reap the harvest? Who starve and who live in plenty? The natural course of things decides it in favor of the knave the natural sentiments of mankind in favor of the man of virtue. Man judges that the good qualities of the one are greatly over-recompensed 
by the advantages which they tend to procure him, and that the omissions of the other are by far too severely punished by the distress which they naturally bring upon him. And human laws, the consequences of human sentiments, forfeit the life and the estate of the industrious and cautious trader, and reward by extraordinary recompenses the fidelity and public spirit of the improvident and careless good citizen. Thus man is by nature directed to correct, in some measure, the distribution of things which she herself would otherwise have made. The rules for which this purpose she prompts him to follow are different from those which she herself observes. She bestows upon every virtue and upon every vice that precise reward or punishment which is best fitted to encourage the one or to restrain the other. She is directed by this sole consideration and pays little regard to the different degrees of merit and demerit which they may seem to possess in the sentiments and passions of man. Man, on the contrary, pays regard to this only, and would endeavor to render the state of every virtue precisely proportioned to that degree of love and esteem, and of every vice to that degree of contempt and abhorrence, which he himself conceives for it. The rules which she follows are fit for her, those which he follows for him, but both are calculated to promote the same great end, the order of the world, and the perfection and happiness of human nature. But though man is thus employed to alter that distribution of things which natural events would make if left to themselves, though like the gods of the poets he is perpetually interposing by extraordinary means in favor of virtue and in opposition to vice, and like them endeavors to turn away the arrow that is aimed at the head of the righteous, but to accelerate the sword of destruction that is lifted up against the wicked, yet he is by no means able to render the fortune of either quite suitable to his own sentiments and wishes. The natural course of things cannot be entirely controlled by the impotent endeavors of man. The current is too rapid and too strong for him to stop it, and though the rules which direct it appear to have been established for the wisest and best purposes, they sometimes produce effects which shock all his natural sentiments. That a great combination of men should prevail over a small one, that those who engage in an enterprise with forethought and all necessary preparation should prevail over such as oppose them without any, and that every end should be acquired by those means only which nature has established for acquiring it, seems to be a rule not only necessary and unavoidable in itself, but even useful and proper for rousing the industry and attention of mankind. Yet, when in consequence of this rule, violence and artifice prevail over sincerity and justice, what indignation does it not excite in the breast of every human spectator? What sorrow and compassion for the sufferings of the innocent, and what furious resentment against the success of the oppressor? We are equally grieved and enraged at the wrong that is done, but often find it altogether out of our power to redress it. When we thus despair of finding any force upon earth which can check the triumph of injustice, we naturally appeal to heaven, and hope that the great author of our nature will himself execute hereafter, what all the principles which he has given us for the direction of our conduct prompt us to attempt even here, that he will complete the plan which he himself has thus taught us to begin, and will, in a life to come, render to every one according to the works which he has performed in this world. And thus we are led to the belief of a future state, 
not only by the weaknesses, by the hopes and fears of human nature, but by the noblest and best principles which belong to it, by the love of virtue, and by the abhorrence of vice and injustice. Does it suit the greatness of God, says the eloquent and philosophical bishop of Clermont, with that passionate and exaggerating force of imagination which seems to sometimes exceed the bounds of decorum? Does it suit the greatness of God to leave the world which he has created in so universal a disorder? To see the wicked prevail almost always over the just, the innocent dethroned by the usurper, the father become the victim of the ambition of an unnatural son, the husband expiring under the stroke of a barbarous and faithless wife. From the height of his greatness ought God to behold those melancholy events as a fantastical amusement, without taking any share in them? Because he is great should he be weak, or unjust, or barbarous? Because men are little, ought they to be allowed either to be dissolute without punishment, or virtuous without reward? O God, if this is the character of your supreme being, if it is you whom we adore under such dreadful ideas, I can no longer acknowledge you for my father, for my protector, for the comforter of my sorrow, the support of my weakness, the rewarder of my fidelity. You would then be no more than an indolent and fantastical tyrant who sacrifices mankind to his insolent vanity, and who has brought them out of nothing only to make them serve for the sport of his leisure and of his caprice. When the general rules which determine the merit and demerit of actions come thus to be regarded as the laws of an all-powerful being who watches over our conduct, and who in a lifetime to come will reward the observance and punish the breach of them, they necessarily acquire a new sacredness from this consideration, that our regard to the will of the deity ought to be the supreme rule of our conduct can be doubted of by nobody who believes his existence. The very thought of disobedience appears to involve in it the most shocking impropriety. How vain, how absurd would it be for man either to oppose or to neglect the commands that were laid upon him by infinite wisdom and infinite power. How unnatural, how impiously ungrateful, not to reverence the precepts that were prescribed to him by the infinite goodness of his Creator, even though no punishment was to follow their violation. The sense of propriety, too, is here well supported by the strongest motives of self-interest. The idea that, however we may escape the observation of man, or be placed above the reach of human punishment, yet we are always acting under the eye and exposed to the punishment of God, the great avenger of injustice, is a motive capable of restraining the most headstrong passions, with those at least who, by constant reflection, have rendered it familiar to them. It is in this manner that religion enforces the natural sense of duty, and hence it is that mankind are generally disposed to place great confidence in the probity of those who seem deeply impressed with religious sentiments. Such persons, they imagine, act under an additional tie, besides those which regulate the conduct of other men. The regard to the propriety of action as well as to reputation, the regard to the applause of his own breast as well as to that of others, are motives which they suppose have the same influence over the religious man as over the man of the world. But the former lies under another restraint, and never acts deliberately but as in the presence of that great superior who is finally to recompense him according to his deeds. A greater trust is reposed upon this account in the regularity and exactness of his conduct. 
and wherever the natural principles of religion are not corrupted by the factious and party zeal of some worthless cabal, wherever the first duty which it requires is to fulfill all the obligations of morality, wherever men are not taught to regard frivolous observances as more immediate duties of religion than acts of justice and beneficence, and to imagine that by sacrifices and ceremonies and vain supplications they can bargain with the deity for fraud and perfidy and violence, the world undoubtedly judges right in this respect, and justly places a double confidence in the rectitude of the religious man's behavior. End of section 19 Recording by Biddy.